The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you will be with us this morning as we meditate on your word and that we will indeed know you as our great, uh, wonderful, trustworthy shepherd in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear our prayer, forgive our sins always, and be with us this morning, for we ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, the faculty is giving devotions on uh, and the uh, topic of wisdom this semester, and I wanted to uh, do what I always do, and that's follow Steve Ball. Often we end up doing the same passage for some strange reason. Not the same passage, but uh, uh, look at uh, James chapter 1. The passage for this morning is verses 13, well, 12 through 15, but I'll focus on verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Wisdom, as I understand it, is... Uh, really the business of understanding the nature of reality as it is, as we experience it, getting to grips with the nature of things, not in quite the way that the Stoics thought of it uh, or uh, other uh, pagan philosophies thought of it, but wisdom is getting to grips with, uh, to use the language uh, of Ecclesiastes, of Koheleth, uh, life under the sun, uh, life as it is after the fall, Uh, Life as it is in the providence of God, in the all-controlling, all-wise, all-perfect providence of God. But with the mysteries that we experience in that providence and with the uh, difficulties uh, and, and with our own role in that providence. One of the great uh, themes in Reformed theology, of course, is the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And uh, there's been considerable amount of of attention paid to the doctrine of providence in Reformed theology. And one of the ways in which Reformed theology developed uh, and matured in the late 16th and throughout the 17th century, uh, after the early stages of the Reformation, was to think about the nature of providence and and of God's relations to uh, causal agents. Or, or second causes, or human agency in the world. And 
uh, a study of Reformed theology in the 17th century shows that there was a remarkable diversity of expression about the nature of human agency. And it's rather uh, more mature, rather more, I, I might even say, sophisticated and developed than the sort of reflection that one sees, for example, in Calvin. Uh, in Institutes 1, um, Book 1, I think uh, Chapter 1, Section 16, if I remember, he, uh, Calvin essentially says that uh, God, if I, if I remember the verb correctly, bends instruments to his will. And, and to be sure, there's, there's truth in that. And uh, one only has to think about, for example, the relationship, uh, providential relationship, the relation, the causal relationship between God and Pharaoh. And scripture does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But scripture also says, and Calvin was well aware of this, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's a reciprocal hardening. And that hardening in which Pharaoh engaged voluntarily, freely, without compulsion, which is one of the great points that we've always tried to make, uh, is, is as real as God's sovereignty. And so one of the things that we tried to do in Reformed Theology is not to flatten out the story of how God operates in his sovereign providence in the world. We don't want to give a ham-fisted account. And one of the passages, uh, when I used to teach the Doctrine of God course, one of the passages to which I always went is this passage in James chapter 1, uh, particularly verses 13, 14, and 15, where James doesn't give us, uh, to be sure, a philosophical account, and nor are we asking him to, but he does uh, give us wisdom as to how to think about uh, the nature of sin, and that's what I want to think about with you for the next 10 minutes, is the relationship between wisdom and the nature of sin. If James is a sort of New Testament wisdom literature, and I think uh, that's certainly a valid way of looking uh, at, at James, uh, then uh, we have to ask, you know, what, what wisdom is God's spirit, first of all, who inspired this epistle, and then through James, what, uh, what is James trying to impart to us? And I think the thing that we need to come away with from this passage is how sin works, how sin happens, how we sin, and by implication, if we pay close attention to this passage, what can be done about it? Because after all, it's, it's, it's not enough simply to know, well, it's good to know um, how that happened. Uh, we always feel a little better when we go to the hospital and they say, well, this is, this is what you did and this is what happened and at least you have an explanation. It's, it's not utterly mysterious. But it's even better when the doctor can say, well, and next time, don't do this. Right? Here, uh, this is what you did and this is what you can do to prevent this next time. Don't, when you lift things, don't twist. Right? Bend your knees. Those, those sorts of things. You, what you did is you, you did this and don't do that. Well, James gives us some wisdom about how sin works and about what we can do to change uh, this process, what we can do to actually affect the process of sin. The first thing that James wants to do, however, is to lay down a theological foundation, and, and he does that in verse 13. No one, he says, when he is being tempted, no one who is being tempted, uh, let, let him not say then, in that case, you're being tempted, that I am being tempted, and 
I think we have to put this in the, in the passive voice, I am being tempted from God. You, this is something you cannot say. Now, why can't you say it? Because it's not polite? Because it's rude? No, because it's not true. James grounds his, he starts here, interestingly enough, uh, with rhetoric, with what may be said and what may not be said. And the first thing he, he starts then with this rhetoric, uh, with what we may say is, right, or what we may not say, we may not say that I am being tempted from God. The temptation that I am experiencing right, is not the moral responsibility of God. We cannot blame God for the temptation that I'm experiencing. Now, this obviously raises some questions in our minds. Don't we say that God is sovereignly in control of all things? Well, James isn't really questioning that. He's not raising that issue per se. James is describing the world as we experience it. He's describing the world, uh, if you will, uh, under the sun. And the thing he's saying here is uh, he's, not, he's not really addressing ultimate causal uh, causalities, if you will, uh, but he is saying what we may and may not say. One thing we can deduce from this is that the relationship between God and temptations that we experience, right, the relationship is more complicated than we would sometimes like to think. The relationship is more complicated than we would sometimes like to think. Well, James goes on to lay down another axiom. We may not say that I'm being tempted by or from God. Why? For God is one way of translating this noun is, or this adjective is untemptable. God is in himself, in his nature, beyond temptation. This is a truly theological answer. His response is grounded in the nature of God. It is contrary, James says, to the nature of God to tempt because he is untemptable literally, of evil or by evil. God has a different relation to evil than we do. We are temptable. All human beings are temptable. We know that from the very beginning. Adam was tempted. And by the way, there's nothing inherently sinful in being tempted. We need to make that clear as well. Hebrews 4.15 makes that point. Our Lord, who is a true, is true God and true man, was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, and we certainly don't want to impugn the moral integrity or the righteousness or holiness of our Lord, even though he was tempted. Human beings may be tempted. God cannot be tempted. He is untemptable. And he himself, therefore, James says, he himself tempts no one. God has a different relation to evil. He has a different relation to sin than we do. We are susceptible to temptation, and we tempt, and we enter into a, an intimate relation at times with temptation, a relation that God is incapable of having in his very nature. In, in, implied in this is, of course, the whole biblical doctrine of the holiness of God, that God is so utterly pure so utterly and completely morally clean that he does not bear the same relation 
to temptation, to evil, to sin that we do. Well, what relationship exactly does he bear? I don't know. I can't tell you that. If I could tell you that, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd probably be glorified, and I'm not even sure we'll know that when we're glorified. Just because we're glorified doesn't mean that we're going to be deified. We'll still be creatures. There's a great mystery here. I mean, there's a great mystery in sin altogether. How is it that an utterly righteous, pure, holy, and just creature, Adam, would first of all even entertain temptation? Because he did entertain it. His wife entertained it. And nurtured it. James goes on to explain the process here in the next verse, and we'll get there in just a moment. And then ultimately, as we know, and as we experience the consequences of it every day, every moment, gave in to it, bringing sin, death, and corruption. How could that possibly be? Well, the medieval church tried to give us an explanation for how that could be, but, of course, the explanation is sheer rationalism. Because there is no... There is no explanation, ultimately, that is satisfactory. It is a great mystery. Each one, James says, the location of temptation and sin is not in God, it's in us. Each one, he says in verse 14, is tempted not by God, by implication, but by his own desire. The, The locus of temptation, the locus of desire, the beginning of sin, of In the old language, concupiscence, this is sinful desire, corrupt desire. There are good desires. This noun here is is not a word that necessarily denotes a corrupt desire, but in this context, it certainly denotes a corrupt desire. The the corrupt desire, the the, the origin of it, the source of it is not in God. it, It is in us. It's in ourselves. And then he uses a couple of interesting words couple of participles. The first one is a participle that refers probably the, the, the image in being invoked here is that of a fisherman. Think of a trout fisherman putting out a lure and then yanking it back. Standing there in the water in the hip waders and putting out that lure and yanking it back. He's, he's lured and as that lure bounces back and forth and it catches, he hopes to catch the, the eye and the attention of a trout. Trout sees it and says, ah, that looks like dinner. And he hopes to get that. We are lured by our own desires flittering around. Was there ever an age when there was more opportunity to be lured by enticing things? We're connected now. I finally got one of these smartphones, and so I'm connected 24-7. First, last thing I do when I go to bed is look at my phone and First thing I do when I get up in the morning is I look at my phone and there's just this constant stream of, of information. And not all of it is wholesome, is it? So there are these things outside of us which capitalize on those corrupt desires within us that lure us, that entice us. Then, James says, that desire connecting with that enticement and that luring unites and produces sin. And the image here is that of a conjugal relation. 
conjugal marital relation that produces sin. And what does this child do? This child matures. This child comes to fruition. It, it comes to complete development. And what happens when this child comes to complete development? It brings forth death. And of course we know that. We, we see that in Holy Scripture from the very beginning. And we know it in our own experience. We've each one of us on a daily basis experienced this very process of our own corrupt desires meeting up with enticements, entertaining those enticements, not turning them off, not walking away, not averting our eyes, but considering them, thinking about them, wondering what it might be like. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe there is something really good out there that I'm that I'm missing out on. Isn't that what the evil one was offering in the very, in the very beginning? You know, you're, you're missing out. You could know what God knows. You could know it the way he knows it. Just eat this. And by the way, today for you only, it's free. Click now. And that child, of course, that child brings forth death. But the good news is, Another child was begotten without enticement, without luring, without corruption, not, and was utterly obedient all of his life, not in order to qualify himself, but in order to do what we could have done in the very beginning and refused to do. And every day of his life, he was aware of these enticements and these allurements. He was tempted as we are, but he didn't relate to that temptation the way that we do. That is, as an old friend of mine said, he knows temptation in a way that we will never know because we give in. He did not. He persevered through that temptation. He obeyed his father. He kept the law. He loved the Lord his God with all of his faculties, all of his life. Right up till the minute and through the time that they arrested him, humiliated him, beat him, made him carry that cross up the hill, crucified him, and he suffered the pains of hell on the cross in order that he might redeem you and me who daily entertain those enticements and who unite our corrupt affections with those enticements and bring forth death. He brought forth life. That's the good news. This morning, won't you trust again in him who gave himself for you that you might have life instead of the death that is the result of that unholy marriage that happens within us on a daily basis. Let's give thanks. We give you thanks this morning, Savior Jesus, for being that holy and righteous son who brought forth life and not death. Give us wisdom, O Lord. Give us wisdom, Holy Spirit, this morning. Uh, as we hear the word of God, may it take deep root in us, and may we live our lives as those who have been bought with a price and those who belong to him who is the wisdom of God. Hear our prayer. Grant us wisdom for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.